0: History is told through the eyes of the victors. And the legends of the Wild West are no different. Like the notorious outlaw, Billy the Kid, some say got a raw deal. The Pacific Northwest had its own legendary lawbreaker, John Torno, also known as the Wild Man of the Wainoochee. He was an expert tracker, an excellent shot, and he preferred the wilderness to the company of other people. He lived off the land, shooting elk, trapping frogs. They were found just about everywhere in the rainforest of Washington's Olympic Peninsula. In the end, the wild man was hunted down, accused of murdering six people.
1: He was one that would shoot first and ask questions later.
0: But was he really the outlaw the homesteaders had grown to fear? Or was he just a misunderstood recluse defending himself against those who refused to leave him alone. I'm Kim Shepard with Carolyn Osorio,
2: and this is The Scene of the Crime. Okay, Kim, so one of my favorite... All-time books growing up was My Side of the Mountain. I don't know if you ever read that I book, have but not. it's about a boy that goes and lives off the fat of the land in the Catskills Mountain. And that book made such an impression on me and my lifelong love of nature, basically. And I was lucky because my dad had ten acres of land out in the woods where he built a house near Bremerton, and my sister and I spent summers, you know, making forts, filling our fort with furniture that we made. But we were, you know, we could play for hours out there. But we were happy. I was happy to go in. Could you live off the land? (laughs) (laughs) The quick answer is no. (laughs) (laughs) Which is all to say that those not familiar with the Olympic Peninsula or anyone who has ever just tried to start a fire as an adult just for the for kicks, you know, it's not it's not easy, especially in inclement weather, which is for most of the year in the Pacific Northwest. Right. So the Olympic Peninsula, it's prehistoric, huge evergreen trees thick with moss that covers every Every inch of everything. I mean, it literally looks like a forest of, of sea green or what is that? Forest, forest green. green, a sea <laughs> of forest green. So I just think that it's important for people to know what this terrain, where this quote-unquote wild man lived, that it's 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 tough land.
0: Yeah, and even tougher back when this took place. This was over a hundred years ago. John Torno was born on September fourth, eighteen eighty. His family homesteaded near the Satsop River. They had a big piece of land where they farmed and raised cattle. And from the time when he was just a small child, John spent most of his hours exploring the wilderness near his home. He would rather play with the wild animals than play with other kids. When John was about 10 years old, he suffered a near fatal attack of the German measles. That left him with a decided lisp. The doctor who treated him said, we've saved his life, but he will be deficient in body or in mind. Author Bill Lindstrom has studied the legend of John Torno for decades and writes about him in his book, Villain or Victim? And Lindstrom says that lisp had a lasting impact on John's life.
1: From the time he was 12 years old, he lived, he lived life in the woods. The family allowed him to go in the woods because he was very self-conscious about being around people that he didn't know. And his parents um, entertained quite a bit. His mother was quite a, a, um, a good cook.
0: So Torno began to shun people altogether and would actually start vanishing for weeks at a time, relying on his hunting skills for food, his tracking and shooting abilities, quickly became a legend. But John also had a deep love and respect for the creatures of the forest. By the time he reached his teen years, it was said that just about any animal would approach him completely unafraid. Between his reclusive nature and his connection with the wilderness, his family had begun to think that he was a little bit odd. While his two older brothers entered the logging business, eventually owning their own company, Torno occasionally worked as a logger or trapper, but more often he continued to maintain that solitary lifestyle in the woods, living off the land, dressing in animal skins and shoes made of bark. John just wanted to be left alone in nature. He was about six foot four inches tall, weighing in at well over 200 pounds. So most folks would just let him (laughs) be alone. They would steer clear, but they all felt that he was pretty harmless. By the first decade of the 20th century, he was rarely venturing out of the woods at all, but would occasionally watch the loggers as they were out there working. On one occasion, he supposedly said to a logger, I'll kill anyone who comes after me. These are my woods. Uh, Some say his brothers did capture him at one point, had him committed to a sanatorium in Oregon. That was about 1909.
1: Some people say that he was a demented person. That was not true. There, There are stories that say that his family had kidnapped him and taken him to an insane asylum in Portland. This was absolutely not true.
0: Lindstrom says John was actually kind of a family favorite when he got a little bit older, and his brothers were jealous, maybe even worried that the family farm would be left to John instead of them.
1: John was the only one who came back to the property and helped him log. He would always come home during planting time, and he would always come home during harvest time to help the family harvest the crops. Well, brother... Fred, the oldest, and Brother Ed, the dumbest and youngest, (laughs) they kind of conspired to try and get John declared insane.
0: The stories were rampant that John managed to escape from that sanatorium in Oregon, return to Satsop, but Torno was also known to be working near Elma at the same time. So it's really sort of unclear what happened in that year. But in either case, no one saw or heard from John for about a year until he began to occasionally visit his sister, Minnie because she'd had twin boys, John and Will Bower. Minnie must have loved her brother John very much because he was her son's namesake. And John taught his nephews how to hunt and how to fish. But in late 1910, there was a family squabble that would fracture the bonds between the Tornos and the Bowers forever. The family matriarch, John's mother Louisa Torno, had broken her hip The youngest son, or as Lindstrom would call him, the dumbest son, Ed, asked Minnie's daughter, Mary, to move in with them to help take care of her. The elderly, Louisa, would sleep downstairs while Ed and his niece, Mary, would sleep upstairs. By this time, all the other siblings had moved out. Now, Minnie's husband, Henry Bauer, was not happy with this arrangement. He wanted to get his daughter, Mary, to come back home, but she refused. And a few months later, she turned up pregnant. Most people believe it was Ed's doing, her own uncle. Early in the pregnancy, Ed took Mary to Aberdeen to have an abortion, and she died following that procedure. The doctor who performed it actually went to prison for botching the procedure.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is a family tragedy that's pretty hard to overcome. And on top of that, it's one of those where I'm sure... The family might have tried to sweep it under the carpet. It was probably too painful and too shameful to, to talk. But you know gossips were talking. And I think it gives us a real sense of this little brother, you know, the the head. <laughs> yeah, the the dumbest. And also, you know, according to this author, sounds like, you know, he's living at home. John's out there, you know, making his way. And this one's just kind of hanging around and trying to get him into a sanatorium because sounds like he couldn't in- inherit the farm. And these folks were not, although it's rustic, it sounds like they were pretty well off. Yeah, they had a, quite a lot of land. They had a farming
0: operation, they had a cattle operation. So, you know, they weren't super wealthy, not Rockefellers by any stretch of the imagination, but they certainly had a decent chunk of property and of money that could be left to the next generation. And it sounds like Ed was staying pretty close to home so he could be there when it was time. Now, the following summer after all this had happened between Mary and Ed, John had a fight with Ed because Ed decided it was time to shoot John's beloved dog Cougar.
1: He had had him for 14 years. He couldn't accompany him in the woods, but he was still John's dog, a beloved pet and a beloved companion in the woods. But John had done some logging in nearby Elma and had come back to the homestead. When John discovered that his dog was killed, John picked up the rifle immediately and shot Ed's dog, not Ed. It's
0: dog. Eye for an eye and a dog for a dog, apparently. John then said he was going to go back in the woods. And again, he said, nobody better come after me. Ed tried to get John declared insane again. He swore out an affidavit and the sheriff actually went out to the woods to serve a warrant. But when he found John, he declared that there was nothing wrong with him. He just wanted to be left alone. Occasionally, he'd be spotted with his tangled hair, that long beard, and ragged clothing. The legend of John Turno began to grow even larger. People described him as a giant gorilla like man seen running through the forest. Some loggers would say that he appeared to be a large hairy beast that would seemingly appear out of nowhere before vanishing back into the trees. In truth, Lindstrom says he was just a man who loved the woods and had adapted to that way of life in the wilderness. His cabins were pretty basic, just lean-to shacks with a few items inside. But he did have a really interesting alarm system that he had set up using all of those native frogs.
1: He would always have a tree that would be across a body of water so that people had to cross that log across a body of water to get to his lean-to. And he had a very unique sentry system that he used The whole Wainuchi area is resplendent with frogs of every size. And what he did was he would take frogs' legs and he would tie the legs together with elk hair, wrap those hairs around the logs. That would still allow the, the frogs to swim in the water, get up on the log, do whatever they wanted to. They had plenty of room to get around. They weren't injured in any way. They just couldn't go anywhere. And they would do their croaking and everything else until somebody stepped on a log. The croaking would immediately stop.
2: Okay, Kim, I just the little girl in me, the 10 year old is just like on fire. I mean, I just love this detail so much (laughs) because it really just showcases the ingenuity of John and his gentleness Mm -hmm. that he could tie, you know, this big man, this this mountain man that they're describing with these gentle enough fingers to tie elk hair to the, the legs of frogs and not hurt them. And it's so smart, like they're croaking, 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 somebody gets close and they be quiet. So he knows. I mean, I just I just love that. And it says so much about John Torno, regardless of what's going to happen in the future. I think that we can take these as little breadcrumbs about you know, who he is, you know, based on, you know, some of these things that he did.
0: Yeah. Well, there were occasionally woodsmen who would report sharing a campfire and some food with the man from the wilderness. He would even go trapping with them every once in a while. In September of 1911, Torno apparently shot and killed a cow that had been grazing in a clearing by his sister's house, not far from the Torno homestead. And while he was dressing out that kill, a bullet whizzed over his head. He dropped his knife, lifted his rifle, and fired three times at something that was obscured by the woods and the thicket. But the bullets found their mark. They hit the victims in the head and the heart. And when he moved in to survey his prey, he discovered his two nephews were dead.
1: He went down, and as soon as he saw that the boys were shot, he was quite remorseful. One of the boys was not quite dead, but he still had a fatal wound. So I believe John put him out of his misery at that point. John then buried the boys in a uh, very shallow grave so that they would be discovered as soon as possible um, by the posse. And he not only buried them in a shallow grave, but he called attention to the grave sites by piling leaves. Now, leaves don't fall in piles. Somebody has to pile leaves.
0: Now as to why John and Will Bauer shot at Torno and why he so quickly returned fire, some historians believe that the boys, who were 19 years old at this time, were intentionally targeting their uncle. But Lindstrom and others believe they might have been aiming at a bear that was feeding off one of the cows in that herd. The bullet accidentally hitting a cedar tree near their uncle's lean-to cabin. That startled Torno and caused him to return fire.
1: If he was in that lean-to and he was looking out, the problem is that it was old-growth timber at that point, and you really couldn't see. So he would see that there was movement. Well, there was not only movement, but if they were shooting and they missed the bear and the shot came up and it went behind the lean-to and into that cedar tree, he's going to immediately fire back. He was one that would shoot first and ask questions later.
0: There are still some who say it wasn't Torno at all who killed those boys, and they offer conjecture that maybe it was hunters or an attorney, even the boy's father. The truth will remain a mystery, but in any case, the mountain man no doubt reasoned somebody was trying to capture or kill him with those gunshots, and that's likely why he
2: returned fire. So, Kim, I have to pause here because, I mean, can you imagine walking up to the scene of the crime your beloved nephews i mean i'm an auntie like i yeah. mean your sister's children one of the one of these boys was given your name in honor and of you and separately because of your brother ed whose actions caused the death of your of your niece so there's a lot of tragedy going on you sit there two identical 19-year-old twins laying there that you accidentally possibly you know killed and some could say that that was just be too much to bear like a, a who wouldn't want to go run? You know, you either face the music or you, you know, you, you go and you run and you hide, which he obviously has a history of doing. I mean, he's already proven
0: that, you know, he doesn't really like dealing with society. Maybe he doesn't really know how to deal with people very well. There's no way somebody like that would then want to deal with society when it comes to this kind of a crime, like you said. I mean, We now have three people in the same family mm-hmm. who have been killed and we're not done yet. So this incident fueled the legend that grew even larger over the next 19 months and ultimately would result in the death of the solitary mountain man. When the Bauer boys didn't return home, their father Henry contacted the sheriff, Ed Payette. Together, they rounded up a group of more than 50 men to search for the twins. They found the first body late the next day, the second early the following morning. Both had been shot in the head and stripped of their weapons. The sheriff immediately announced that the shooting had to have been committed by John Torno, and a posse was rounded up to search for the wild man living in the forest. In no time, loggers and farmers were making up the posse, roaming the Satsop area and the lower regions of the Wainoochee Valley, wary of the large man they knew to have the intuition of an animal, the knowledge of a native tracker and the skills of a sharpshooter.
1: What's really amazing about this story is nobody saw John throughout that entire time. Some thought they saw John when the um, posses went to investigate. And also, whatever happened at that time, if there was a, a house that burned, if there was a horse that was slaughtered, if there was a cow that was shot or... Anything like anything, if there was a robbery, anything that happened was it was John that did it.
0: And the longer they searched and didn't find the boy's killer, the more the legend grew. Soon, the story is told of a cold eyed giant constantly traversing the forest in search of prey. They gave him labels like the wild man of the Wainuchi, wild man of Oxbow, the cougar man and mad Daniel Boone. With each telling, the story became larger and larger until the entire countryside was terrified. As the story spread to adjacent camps of Aberdeen, Montesano, Elma, and Hoquiam, and deep into the Olympic Mountains, no one felt safe with John Torno on the prowl. Women and children were warned to stay indoors as the men oiled their hunting rifles and unleashed their dogs for protection. The search continued into the winter before they were forced into the lowlands due to deep snow. But Torno simply headed to higher terrain. As Lindstrom said, any time a cabin or store was burglarized, it would be attributed to John. But many in the Satsop area doubted the veracity of those allegations. He just didn't have to do that. Residents of the upper Satsop Valley who grew up with John as their neighbor
2: would often also leave food and provisions out for him. Some even let him have a chicken or two. I I think that the way the investigation, it seems like it got off on the wrong foot from the start. And you can see that it's because of this sort of Jesse James type figure where – You know, Jesse James was kind of a Robin Hood. They thought of him like that, but he really was a cold-blooded killer. So where are you standing in this case so far? Do you think Tornow is a villain or a victim? I I totally think he's a victim. I, I think that there's nothing in his character that showed that he was a killer to begin with. I mean, yes, he killed to eat, you know, elk and deer and all those things, but that does not make you a murderer. And then on top of that, they saw, you know, we can see the investigation with the leaves on top of it, you know, where he's like covering them so that they, you know, wild animals, there's that care that you that one could assume like I mean there's no forensics back then. Right. So he could have just left the bodies out for wild animals to get a hold of and he didn't do that. Right, exactly. So I think and, and then they're not even looking into the to Ed. They're not looking into, like, modern law enforcement, you know, what they would do is is they look into, well, who would have a motive to kill the boys? What would happen if this domino effect happened? Ed and the older brother have a lot to gain by spreading these rumors about his mental state. So I just think that right now, I mean, I, I see this is going down a really rough road because he's going to be misunderstood. Mm, yeah. And so a tragic event but anyway, continue on. Well, although Torno was never charged with any
0: crimes, Chehalis County offered a $1,000 reward for his capture. Despite their fears of the wild man, the number of men hunting Torno dramatically increased. They wanted that reward. On February 20th, 1912, there was one gunshot happy hunter who killed a 17-year-old boy because he mistook him for Torno. Yeah. A few weeks later, a traveling prospector reported to Deputy Colin McKenzie that he had spotted Torno at a camp in the Oxbow. And about the same time, there was a robbery. And Torno, of course, was the easy suspect. The general store was broken into. It had a strong box that went missing. And that store also happened to serve as the Oxbow Bank. So the story goes that in that strong box was $15,000 of gold coins. But Lindstrom says this story just does not add up at all.
1: Well, <clears throat> I've talked to coin collectors who said $15,000 of gold coins in those days would weigh about three tons. Oh, my <laughs> <wasn't> God. Possible. <laughs> Second, that was never part of his M.O. He never operated that way at all. In fact, people in the Matlock area would actually leave supplies for him in their yard and John would always leave something for them. He would leave elk hides or he would leave salmon.
0: So he was a fan of the barter system, but the robbery was yet another reason to renew the manhunt for Torno. Together with Deputy Game Warden Alva Elmer, Deputy McKenzie headed out, but they only found a cold campfire at the spot where Torno had reportedly been seen. A month later, McKenzie and Elmer... Went missing. And the reward for the wild man was increased to $2,000. On March 16th, Deputy Sheriff A.L. Fitzgerald gathered up another posse and went back on the hunt for Torno in both the Oxbow area and Chehalis County. Though they searched high and low, what they found instead of Torno were the bodies of Mackenzie and Elmer. Both had been shot between the eyes, their clothing, guns, and watches all gone.
1: They actually were buried in the form of a T, which is really strange because why would John Torno bury them in the form of a T and kind of call attention to him? Others think that maybe it wasn't John who killed him and they were buried in the tea to draw attention to John.
0: Whether or not you believe that John Torno killed these two men, there is definitely a
2: pattern here. Everybody who comes after him winds up dead. Yeah. And at this point, he's making law enforcement look really bad. And also the story sold in newspapers, you know, back in oh, the day. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and as we know it, if it bleeds, it leads. And I'm sure stoking this fear in the community. And I bet there weren't any articles going into John's, you know, backstory about, right. you know, who he was, what he was about, you know, that he really couldn't care less about money. I mean, at least it appears that he's into the barter system of like, you're giving me this, I'm giving you that. I mean... It's just you can see it happening as it as it unfolds as it, as this type of a story always does you know you blame the guy who looks different acts different you know and exactly. and that's and that's where we're going here. And the search continued
0: and Torno was again spied here and there but he continued to elude capture all through 1912 and into the early spring of the next year again the reward was doubled now up to 4 1000 dollars That's a lot of money back then. On April 16th, Deputy Giles Quimby, along with deputized trappers from Shelton, Louis Blair and Charles Lathrop, acting on a tip they got from the sheriff, came upon a small shack made of bark. They believed it was the crude cabin belonging to Torno. Quimby wanted to head back for the posse, but the other two didn't want to have to share that $4,000 bounty with anybody else. So with guns ready... Two of them approached the shack.
1: They both arrive at this log, and the frogs were chirping away, and all of a sudden they stop. So he's in his lean-to now, and he comes out, and he allows Lathrop and Blair to get within eight feet of him.
0: A shot rang out, hitting Blair, who fell into the nearby bushes. Lathrop returned fire but was immediately hit in the neck. The injured Lathrop got off about three shots before his rifle jammed, and Torno finished him off. Quimby, meantime, that third guy, he was hidden behind a tree stump about 75 feet away.
1: He was a little bit on the the cowardly side. So when he sees that the two had been shot and killed, he starts firing, and he fires six shots. The seventh shot, he sees a head kind of drop, and... He waits and waits and there's no more shooting. So he knows that he's shot Torno. He doesn't know whether he's killed him or not, but he's also scared to death of this guy.
0: So worried that Torno might just be playing dead, Quimby scurried away through the woods. He went back to base camp where he called in his brother in law, who also happened to be a sheriff. They gathered up another posse, and the men began the trek back to the spot where Quimby had fired on Torno. Sure enough, Torno was found dead, leaning against a hemlock, his head drooping down to his chest. He wore three sets of clothing, including tin pants that he had taken off Elmer. His boots were from the slain Mackenzie, though they were too small, and he had to cut holes in the toes for them to fit. His hair was long, dirty, and matted, and he had grown a long dark beard as well. He was gaunt and seemed to only be a shell of the massive man that had grown to be. Before Torno's body was returned to Montesano, word had already reached town that the wild man had finally been killed. And curious gawkers began lining the street to get a peek at the legendary mountain man. Deputy Sheriff Giles Quimby told a newspaper at the time that John Torno. Had the most horrible face i ever saw the shaggy beard and long hair out of which gleamed two shining murderous eyes haunts me now he said i could only see his face as he uncovered himself to fire a shot and all the hatred that could fire from the soul of a human being was evident now can we just go back and remember that quimby was the one who didn't get very close to torno And he was the one who turned tail and ran the second that he thought Torno might not be dead.
2: So I would love to know how he ever got a look in Torno's eyes. Well, you know, and it's interesting, too. It's curious about how we've evolved over time about how we view death. And when I mean view, I mean it literally. According to author Ron Franchel's website, back in the 19th century, when photography was born, it became popular for those with means to take pictures of dead loved ones as keepsakes. Now, that sounds extremely, I don't know about you, but that sounds really creepy, right, you know, in modern day. But another thing happened when Wild West outlaws were captured and killed. These gruesome photos became popular and were turned into postcards. First, I think it, you know, satisfied the bloodlust that humans have—the looky-loose. You know, all the people like wanted to look into the the, the eyes of this killer, right? But it also was a way for law enforcement to calm the nerves of the people because remember the people were so freaked out. Like, about, really did kill this guy? Yeah, he really is yeah. dead. So it spread the news that they were dead, and it was like, like here's the proof. We got him. And you could say that those photographs, you know, told a story in many ways. It's like the first form of true crime, you know, a sort of cautionary tale to wanna be bad guys. Like this could be your fate because they often propped up the bodies in ways that, you know, it just looked gruesome and grotesque. I don't know if you've seen the photo any of these photos, oh, yes. but it's it's really kind of fascinating. So the fashion of post-mortem photography went, you know, went out of fashion. But the practice of taking photos of dead outlaws continued for the next 100 years. A more modern-day example would be Bonnie and Clyde. And, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously, you know, May 1934, law enforcement caught up with the duo on a back road in Louisiana. They were outnumbered, didn't stand a chance, and Bonnie and Clyde were gunned down, shot up to 50 times each. And that photo was circulated. Those bodies were almost unrecognizable. But it's like these are— snapshots into kind of true crime, into maybe the allure of like, what happened? Who were these people? How can we figure it out? Right? And and don't commit these crimes yourself, or this could happen to you. Yeah, exactly. Well, in this
0: case, John's eldest brother, Fred, traveled up from Portland because he didn't want John's body to go on public display. But... There were some 250 people who stormed into the tiny morgue demanding to see the body of John Torno. The overwhelmed coroner just threw up his hands and let him inside. Before it was all said and done, it would take dozens of deputies to keep the crowd from tearing off bits of his clothing and removing locks of hair. Postcards were printed, like you mentioned, they featured that photo of Torno in various poses of death such as tied to a tree or propped up against a plank. He wasn't just photographed, but he was posed and photographed. And some newspaper articles would have headlines like the great outlaw of Western Washington with a picture of the deceased Torno in the newspaper. Later talking about his brother's death, Fred Torno would say, I'm glad John is dead. It was the best way. Now that it's over, I would rather see him killed outright than linger in a prison cell. So he saw no other ending than jail or death for his brother. At the time of his death, John Torno had about $1,600 in the Montesano Bank. He owned real estate in Aberdeen. He had a, a large timber claim in Chehalis County. So even though he lived off the land... He managed to stock away to, you know, a little savings, a little something for well, himself. Well,
2: and $1,600 back in the day, I mean, that's a lot of – that's not just a little. I mean, that's a, probably a lot of money back then.
0: Well, and going back to, you know, did he really need to steal from homes to break into stores – To survive. Again, you know, he clearly seemed to have been taking care of himself and didn't seem to need to do all that. Giles Quimby was proclaimed a hero for finally killing the feared wild man of the Wainuchi, so much so that he received offers to appear on stage to tell his story. Well, Quimby politely declined those offers, and it was more than a year before he finally received one third of that $4,000 reward. Lathrop and Blair, the two men who were killed in that confrontation with Torno, their families got nothing. Torno was buried in the family cemetery near the homestead. He's buried next to his parents and just a few feet from the Bauer twins, those nephews he was accused of killing. In April of 2013, a hundred years after Torno's death, a memorial was erected at the Torno Lake campsite to honor all six of the victims alleged to have been killed by the wild man John Torno. But Lindstrom notes that Torno's legacy could have been very different.
1: Interestingly, the Seattle Post-Intelligencer, after John was killed, had a uh, editorial that actually said. That if John had been left alone, he would have been another John Muir. They believed that he was that much of a conservationist, that he loved the land that much, that everything he did was to preserve the land.
2: So Tornow, it seems, was cut from the, you know, he mentioned John Muir, and, you know, Muir had a love of nature and a call to protect it. According to Muir's bi- biographer, Donald Worster, who said Muir's mission was, quote, saving the American soul from total surrender to materialism. But a huge difference was that Muir was a great writer and political speaker and inspired others to love and cherish nature, whereas Torno was quiet and preferred being out in nature, and he was very different. But we can see in the way that he lived his life, aside from the tragic thing that happened to his nephews and what happened being a hunted, you know, outlaw, basically, you know, it could have been very different. And
0: really sad to think that he was treated the way that he was because he was different, like you said, because he didn't act like a typical person that, you know, the way you would expect someone to act – he must be evil, he must be bad. And, you know, I'm I'm happy to say that as a society, I think we've really moved past that in many ways, not completely, but in many ways, we've moved past that. And and who knows what would have happened had John Torno lived today instead of back born in
2: 1880. Yeah. You know, what's interesting, though, about the author Bill Lindstrom is that he spent decades researching this book. Can you imagine spending decades on one story? I mean, it just shows the interest that still exists today in this story so many years later you know it's all about you know the injustice of it all right i mean it's about a guy who just
0: wanted to be one with nature and and for us here in the pacific northwest i think a lot of people feel that way a lot of people can probably relate to his mindset and to see him villainized the way that he was is really sad and if you if you look back at the crimes he's accused of committing every single one of the people he killed shot at him first Mm -hmm. or came at him Mm -hmm. first
2: Yeah, I mean, I I keep thinking back to when after his brother, Ed, killed Cougar, his beloved dog, and then he shot his, his, you know, he retaliated and Mm -hmm. shot his dog. The sheriff and his crew went out looking for him because his brother had, you know, lodged a complaint about him. And they found him because he wasn't being hunted. And he said, and he talked to them, and he and talked they to had them. It straightened out, and yeah, yeah. And you can see that he was, you know, as as the author said, you know, he was the type to shoot first and ask questions later. And so, you know, it's it's just one of these cautionary tales, not only for you know want to be criminals, but also like, you know, it can be really scary to be different. Yeah, and that still is prevalent today, as much as unfortunately, unfortunately you it know, is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So, Carolyn, what are you cooking up for next week? Yeah, so next week I'm taking you back to the gritty 1970s near Tacoma, Washington, where the mob was a huge player in the area at that time, and they had help with the local law enforcement. So this is a story that will reveal corruption at the highest level. And I hope a little disco as well. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> a little, a tiki bars is a part of this,
0: so we'll have Ooh. some fun, yeah. Very nice, all right. That's Carolyn Osorio, I'm Kim Shepard. Don't forget to find us at sceneofthecrimepodcast.com. And head to your favorite podcast player, give us a five-star rating and a review that would really help us out a lot. I'm Kim Shepard with Carolyn Osorio and this is The Scene of the Crime.